1 Corinthians. Uh, if you're new with us, we started a series about a month ago now called Messy Church. And we have been looking at a church that was very messy. And uh, since you are here at K. Russo, I'll go ahead and break the news to you. You are at a messy church, too. And if you choose to visit somewhere down the street next week, you will be going to a messy church. Because where there are people, there are messes. Not just physical messes, but spiritual messes. The pastor is a mess at times, and I know that you're a mess at times. So we can get that out of the way and not feel awkward this morning if we've got messes in our lives and messes in our church. But what we should do is deal with those biblically. And so we have been looking at what the Apostle Paul tells us about dealing with messes, messy church. And today we're going to talk about a topic that may make some folks uncomfortable, but I think it's important that we discuss it, and that is carnal Christianity. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and we're going to look at what the Apostle Paul has to say about carnal Christians and what exactly that means. There was a story of a young girl who got saved. She received Jesus Christ as her Savior, and she wanted to become a member of this local church. And so they were asking her some questions about her, her conversion and about her life with Christ. And one of the deacons asked, were you a sinner before you received the Lord Jesus in your life? And she said, yes, sir. And so he replied, well, are you still a sinner? And she said, to tell you the truth, I feel I'm a greater sinner now than ever before. He responded, then what real change have you experienced? And she said this, I don't quite know how to explain it, except I used to be a sinner running after sin. But now that I'm saved, I'm a sinner running from sin. That's a great explanation of the Christian life and what it looks like. I hear my toy being squeaked in the back, back there. Caleb, thank you for that. <laughs> we'll share the joke later with you. Carnal Christianity is a reality that all of us at times can fall into. And so, as I've been doing each week, I've been reading these opening verses from our text from a very loose paraphrase. Not that I recommend those for study or consistent reading, but I've been doing it so you would get a good basic understanding of what we're talking about. Because sometimes more technical translations can kind of lose that as you just read. They're great to study, sometimes not so readable. And so I want to read these verses to you today from the Living Bible, and then we'll dig in deeper as we get into the text. Dear brothers, I have been talking to you as though you were still just babies in the Christian life who are not following the Lord but your own desires. I cannot talk to you as I would to healthy Christians who are filled with the Spirit. I have had to feed you with milk and not with solid food because you couldn't digest anything stronger. And even now you still have to be fed on milk. For when, for you are still only baby Christians controlled by your own desires, not God's. When you are jealous of one another and divide up into quarreling groups, doesn't that prove you are still babies wanting your own way? In fact, you are acting like people who don't belong to the Lord at all. There you are, quarreling about whether I am greater than Apollos and dividing the church. Doesn't this show how little you have grown in the Lord? Who am I and who is Apollos that we should be the cause of a quarrel? Why, we're just God's servants, each of us with certain special abilities and with our help. 
you believed. Father, we come to you today, again, asking for that help that only can come from you, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the truth, that we would see ourselves as you see us, not how we want to be seen or how we think we are known, but to be truly known and seen by you. God, show us areas of our life that we need to deal with and help us to see the urgency of dealing with those things, Lord, as we look around at the world, as we look around at the signs that the Bible is pointing to the last days being upon us. God, we know, and I hope we know, that this is not the time to play games spiritually. It's not the time to play games with eternity. That if we're not right, we need to get right before it's too late. So, Lord, speak today. May you increase as always, and may I decrease and get out of the way so you can have full glory and full attention of these people. And we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been talking about, in this letter, the divisions in the church. Corinth was a divided church, and Paul has been dealing with the division. We looked at how they divided into groups. Sadly, that happens in many churches still today. You can walk into church and see cliques, and you can see certain groups that run and control things, and new people are not allowed to infiltrate those groups And they may claim to be a welcoming church, but they're far from that. Unless you completely change and conform to what they want you to be. We saw competing philosophies. They had different viewpoints. They were embracing worldly wisdom into the church at Corinth. And they were boasting on that worldly wisdom. And it was dividing the church into spiritual camps. They were preaching different messages. We looked at the centrality of the cross and why that is our message to preach. And yet Corinth had different messages that were confusing and dividing the church. Those were the causes uh, of division or the areas of division. But today Paul is going to look and focus in on the cause. Here's the thing, church, that I want you to recognize. Every church can have different reasons why it's divided, but every church will have the same cause. It may be different purposes that are going on, different fights, different arguments, but underneath the surface is the same cause, and that is carnality. That is acting out in the flesh, and that is what we're going to look at today. I want to remind you, as I say often, whatever translation of Bible you have open in front of you this morning, it did not originally have chapters and verses. The letter is exactly what it was, a letter to the church at Corinth. It was not divided up into sections. It just would have been read like a letter would be read today. And so when we come to what we call chapter 3, we can't detach it from what's been said. And I want to recall to mind what we talked about last week. Look at the verse above, chapter 2, verse 16, and look at the very last thing Paul had just said to these people at Corinth. We have, present tense, a present reality, we have in our possession the mind of Christ. Now notice how he starts chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, he's including himself in this group of believers. This is written to a church. A church, at least God's church, is made up of saved people. Lost people may come, and we invite lost people to come to church. Lost people may even deceptively find their way on the church membership rolls. But there is no lost, unbelieving, unsaved person that will ever be part of the universal 
church, i.e. God's kingdom, God's family. You can be a member of a local church and die lost. It happens. And so we are fallible. We can't always vet and find every single thing that may be wrong about you. And so lost people can become members of a church, but not part of the kingdom of God. But these are real believers. Paul is saying, you are my brethren. I include myself with you. And we have the mind of Christ. That's part of being a new believer, a born-again believer, is that we are now in Christ. We have a new nature. We've been talking about this on Tuesday nights in our men's study, about being in Christ and being born again and what that means. But here's the thing. Even though Paul says they have this mind of Christ, that they're new creatures in Christ, the Bible also says things like we have to put on Jesus Christ. We have to make sure that we are walking in that reality. Yes, positionally we are saved, but is that practically showing up in the way that we live? That takes effort. That takes obedience. That takes faithfulness. In Romans 13, 14, which I believe was the verse that Cal really started this men's study from, it says there, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. What does he mean there? He's saying don't continue to give future opportunities to your flesh to act out in ways that are contrary to who you now are in Christ. I was thinking about when he said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever been going through your closet, maybe you're thinning things out, or you're just uh, switching over your summer and winter clothes or whatever, and you stumble across an outfit and the tags are still on it? and you forgot you had it. Have you ever done that? Well, that's, that, that's kind of what I thought about when Paul says this, like, we have the Lord Jesus Christ, but is he hanging in the closet, so to speak, and we never put on that new nature, and what I mean by putting it on is living it out. Is it evident that we have been saved because our actions and our attitude has changed? That takes effort, guys. It won't just happen. Yes, we are changed by the Holy Spirit. We can't do that in our strength. That's not at all what I'm saying. But I'm saying that as the Spirit leads us, as we walk in the Spirit and as we read the Word of God and our mind is transformed, we can still rebel against that. Listen, a Christian can disobey. disobey. Absolutely. A Christian can quench the Spirit. Absolutely. A Christian can grieve the Spirit. Now, there are consequences for our actions and there's chastisement for our sin as believers. But make no mistake about it, you won't just accidentally become holy. It's going to take effort as the Spirit and the Word of God transforms you to walk in that thing. Over and over, the Bible says, walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Don't walk in the flesh. It takes an effort to do those things. So Paul is saying to these believers that... I can't speak to you. Notice what he says there in verse 1. I could not speak to you as spiritual people. They're saved, but he can't have any real depth of conversation with these believers. Why? Because they're carnal. They're acting fleshly. They're still babies in Christ. So we'll see a little bit later. Paul had planted this church. He had started this church. And he didn't just start it one day and leave the next. He was with them for 18 months, preaching and teaching and laying a foundation. And now we come five years removed from that time. 
And these folks who had the Apostle Paul as their teacher and pastor and mentor, five years into this Christian life, are still babies. And that's concerning to Paul. And it should be concerning to any pastor in any church because that says that either A, discipleship is not taking place, or B, there is a carnality and a sin problem that needs to be dealt with in the life of that person if they have not grown at all in five years. And so I want to make it clear as we get into this, when we are born in the flesh, when you were birthed, you are born with a sin nature. We, we hear young children and babies, we've got some in the nursery back there to the glory of God, we thank God for that. But you don't have to teach those little ones to throw a fit. You don't have to teach those little ones to snatch some other kid's toy and take it. You don't have to teach those little kids to lie. It's inherent in them. It's inherent in us. We have that sin nature. The Bible tells us that Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man, who is that one man? Adam, the first man created. Through that one man, when he fell in the garden, you say, well, wait a minute. Guys are saying, wait a minute, it was Eve. It wasn't us. We just got tricked, right? Listen, men, you are the head of your home. God holds us accountable. And it is our duty. That sin was passed down through the, the genealogy of the man. And so we're not getting around it. We can't point fingers at our wives and the women or Eve and say it was their fault. We shouldn't have to suffer for what the woman did. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death, because the wages of sin is death, death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Given enough life and enough time, every one of you in this room will sin. It doesn't take long for that to be evident. And so, because we are born with a sin nature, because we are born in sin, and the wages of sin is death, and we are separated from God, if we continue in just that type of relationship with God, we will die lost. We will die in our sins. That's why the Bible says we have to be born again. Our fleshly birth gives us temporary life here. But we need eternal life, and that has to come through a spiritual birth, a new birth. And Romans 5.18 tells us how that takes place. Therefore, as one trespass, the fall in the Garden of Eden started this world into sin, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness, what was that act? The cross, the sinless Son of God laying down His life for our sins. By one act of righteousness leads to justification. That means not guilty. You are justified by faith in Christ, and that life comes for all men, Paul writes to the church in Rome. So here is the struggle that now takes place, and this is where we're at today with 1 Corinthians 3 and maybe with you. I know who I am in Christ, or at least the Bible tells me who I am but I really struggle to apply that and live it out every day. I really have a hard time distinguishing who the Bible says I am and who I feel like or who I actually present myself to be at times to the world, to my family, to my coworkers, to my schoolmates, whatever it is. There's a struggle that goes on. Let me say this. That struggle does not take place in lost people's lives. 
There is no struggle. Corpses, dead people, don't have any feelings. You can jump up and down on a body, they don't feel a thing. And when you're dead in your sins, you're not concerned about the spiritual struggle that's taking place to try to live for Christ. You are living for you. You're living for your sin. You don't worry about displeasing God. You just go out and do what you want to do. You don't care what I say. You don't care what your parents say. You don't care what the Bible says because you don't care what God says because you're living for you. That's how lost people live. But let me tell you this. There's times when Christians live that way too. But the difference is, if you're really saved, you are going to be miserable as long as you live that way. Because there's one king and it ain't you. And as long as you are trying to take a spot and occupy a spot that doesn't belong to you, you will never have peace, you will never have joy, you will never have assurance, and you will never have God's blessing on anything that you're doing that's contrary to His will. I don't care how much you love Him. I don't care how prosperous it's made you. I don't care how good it feels. If it goes in opposition to God's Word, you are standing in opposition to God. And He will never bless you for disobedience. He will never honor sin, no matter how you try to twist it or turn it. There is a battle, though, that takes place in the life of the believer. And we've all felt it, and maybe you feel it today, and it's not a comfortable place to be. But the Apostle Paul felt it, and if one of the greatest Christians that ever lived felt it, I'm pretty certain that I'm going to feel it, and you are too. Romans 7, verses 15 and verse 19, he says... For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Ever been there? He goes on and says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That is the struggle of every true believer that has ever lived. There will be moments, there will be times where that is a reality. But that will not be your lifestyle permanently. That's the difference. Every Christian will struggle and war against sin. Every lost person loves and embraces their sin. Or even redefines it so they don't have to call it that. Right? The world doesn't call it murder. They call it choice. The world doesn't call it uh, a, a, a confusion between a man and a woman. They call it gender identity. Whatever you want to redefine it to say, the reality is that it's sin. And God will not change his word to make you feel better about it. And so these Corinthians, Paul says in verse 1, they're, they're, they're carnal. They're believers, but they're not living like believers. They're not acting like believers. They're not treating one another like believers. He says you're carnal or fleshly. That word in the Greek is sarks. We get words like sarcophagus. You ever heard of that? A tomb, like what the Egyptians would use. That word sarcophagus, it means flesh eater. They thought when you put the body inside of there and your flesh would decompose, so they coined it a sarcophagus. It eats the flesh. And I would say that when you live in the flesh, it will absolutely eat you up. It will devour any good thing in your life. Again, you may get all sorts of pleasure and prosperity and all kinds of worldly benefits from living for the flesh. But there's life beyond this flesh, church. 
And there's going to come a day when you stand before a holy God and give an account. And no matter how good you felt and how much money you made, if it was done a sinful way, it will burn up in front of you. And God will judge it. He says to them, you're living by the old nature. The Latin word, as, this, as the Bible was translated from Greek into Latin, the two words for the flesh was carne. You've probably heard of that word, carne. Valet. We get our word carnival from that word. Do you know what a carnival was? Before Lent, if you were Catholic or grown up in that kind of background, you would give up something for a length of time to try to appease the flesh, so to speak, try to mortify the flesh. And so before the Lent, they would go to the carnival and they would indulge themselves. We might think about Mardi Gras today and Fat Tuesday. The day before Lent, before you're going to give up everything, you go out and sin as much as you can so that for the next 40 days you can feel good about your holiness, but you get it all out of the way at the carnival the night before. That's the idea of living for the flesh. They were allowing the flesh to consume them, and that's not how Christians are to live. He says in verse 1 that they were babies in Christ. It's wonderful to walk down the aisle and peek through that window and see those little babies crawling around on the floor. It's very awkward to see 40 and 50 year olds in that nursery crawling around on the floor. It ain't supposed to be that way. We're not supposed to act like babies if we've been saved for decades. We all get in the flesh, but he's saying, listen, there's no growth in your life and I'm concerned. Why are you still babies in Christ? Why are you not exhibiting this new nature in your life? And he goes on to say, listen, in verse 2 he said, I fed you with milk and not with solid food. Why? Because babies need milk. Babies need to be nourished and fed as babies. And so do new believers. It, it, it's, 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 I don't want to say it's comical because it's not comical, but I love to see new believers. I, I, I talk, I've told Kevin this many times. I love to hear Kevin's heart when he shares things on Wednesday night in Bible study because there's this newness about him and, and, and everything that he's going through, he can, he can put it out in just the simplest of terms and it causes you to smile because as believers that have maybe matured a little bit more, we can look back and say, I remember that time. But Kevin's on milk. Sarah Bear is on milk. Chris Bear is on milk. They just got saved. They're new believers. And some of you are still new in the faith. And so it's a beautiful thing to see you, so to speak, with the bottle, just learning these new truths and your eyes are being opened to things and, and there's a growing process. And that's beautiful. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about here. New Christians can be so hard on themselves and sometimes it's because the church is hard on them. We should not be hard on new believers if they don't understand and know the things that we do or what we think they ought to. If you see areas in a new Christian's life where you feel like they're falling short, what are you doing to disciple them? Don't criticize them. Don't tear them down. Don't chastise them. Help them. They're babies. You know, if we go back to the nursery, there's only two or three things that we expect those babies to do. Eat, and then the other thing, and sleep, right? And we wouldn't expect them to do anything else, so why do we expect that from new believers? Let's love the Kevins and the Sarahs and the Chrises and those of us that have been doing this for a little longer, man, what a mission field for us. Invest in those people. Look at the youth. 
They're just starting out in a lot of things, not just in their Christian walk, but in life. Mentor them. It's easy to find fault. Oh, they're noisy, and oh, they dress funny, and oh, they talk funny, and oh, this and oh, that. But listen, if we don't try to go to them and love them and help them, they're going to get love from the world out there, and when they turn 18, they'll go out there because the world loved them more than we did. You see? We have got to show grace. Yes, speak truth, and when there's sin and error, correct it lovingly. But we are not the Holy Spirit. We don't have to try to convict everybody of sin. He'll do his job. We just teach them the truth and love them and let God be God. And so these new believers need milk. In 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2, Peter says that. He says, lay aside malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all evil speaking. Listen, he says, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the world, that you may grow thereby. He says, you ought to want that. New believers want that. They're excited for the... It, it's basic to them, but they're so excited, they just want to talk about Jesus. And you're like, yeah, I know all this. I've heard this before, but it's new to them. Let them be excited. Encourage them. Listen to them. It's awesome to see the things that Peter mentions in that first verse. Malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and evil speaking. Those are things that ought to be of the old nature. That's what we were and what we did when we were lost. He says, lay that stuff aside. Literally, throw it away. Get rid of that garbage. It doesn't have a place in our lives anymore. We want the pure, unmixed Word of God so that we can grow. I thought about, again, the Apostle Paul was this church's pastor. I think that he would be qualified as a pretty good pastor, wouldn't you? And yet, I thought about the fact that even with the best pastor, they still were struggling to become who they needed to become in Christ. On one sense, that made me feel some relief. But on another sense, it still troubled me because I feel the responsibility as a pastor to lead well and to shepherd well and to teach well. And I hope I always feel that weight. But I also look at that and say, if, if Paul was their pastor and they still struggled, I shouldn't expect to have a perfect church either. No matter how well I do this, it still doesn't mean anything until God is the one that changes your life and your heart. And I have to remove myself and not think too highly of myself to say this all depends on me because it doesn't. There, there are things that I need to do and expectations that God has of me that I want to live up to and that the church expects of me that I want to live up to. But at the end of the day, this is bigger than me. It's got to be a dependence on Christ. There was a quote, you may have seen it on Facebook, that says, Judas had the best pastor, the best leader, the best counselor, and he still failed. If you fail to accept responsibility and accountability for your life and walk, if you don't invest in your growth and guard your heart and seek Jesus, you will not grow. That's the truth. That is the truth. At some point, we can't blame the church and the pastor and the youth leader and the deacons and the Sunday school teachers. Yes, we all play a role. But your growth is dependent on your walk with Christ. You will get out what you put in to your life. He says to them, I fed you with milk and not with solid food. That was in the past. That was when he first planted the church. In the past, when they were brand new believers, he was feeding them with milk, the basics, the simple things of the gospel, if you will. That was in the past. But he says, for until now, you're not able to receive it. 
and even now you're still not able. He said, five years ago I fed you with milk because that's what you needed. Now we're still he, we're here five years later and we still got bottles. The whole church is still hanging out in the nursery. Something is wrong. I want to teach you and feed you with meat. I don't want to keep going back there and changing your diapers and giving you bottles in the nursery. That's, that's where they were at. And in Hebrews, if, if you believe Paul wrote Hebrews, it really secondary who wrote it, but in Hebrews 5, 12 and 14, it says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you still need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason use their senses and have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. He says, as you mature in the faith, you will get off of the bottle and you will start to be able to eat more solid food and you will continue to grow. But if you stay on the bottle and you never progress, you will be a baby your whole life. And we have a lot of people in churches that are babies and carnal and that brings all sorts of issues into the church because you can't deal with them as spiritual people because they're in the flesh. And what do fleshly people do? They get all up in their feelings. They let emotions lead them. Now, I'm not saying that emotions are always bad, but I'm saying nine times out of ten, when you're in your flesh, you don't think, you react. And if you've ever been in a church fight or a church split or a family fight or a work fight, you know that it just turns into a shouting match and everybody just wants to be right. That's the flesh. Jesus has been forgotten, his word has been set aside, and we're just trying to win the fight. And that's what Paul says is going on here. I can't talk to you guys. I can't teach you and help you to grow because you're in your flesh. You're not acting like believers ought to act. We're going to see as we get deeper into this letter, the Corinthians had the greatest pastor that could have been at the time, but what was their focus when we get farther into this letter? They were focused about the sign gifts, about tongues and prophecy. They wanted to be seen and they wanted to be heard. They wanted to be important. They didn't care about learning the doctrine. That was boring. They wanted to do things so that they could get a name for themselves. It was all the flesh, even in the good things. It was the flesh that was motivating them to want these gifts. Their sins that we're going to see in just a moment, it pointed... To them, their sins were internal and focused on themselves. And that is the number one thing that you can look at to say, well, pastor, how do I know if I'm in the flesh? How do I know if I'm really walking in the flesh? I would say the number one thing that you will see is that the most important person will be you. If everything is about you, there's a good chance you're in the flesh. If every decision that is made ought to cater to you if every direction that the church or family or life goes is about you if all of your wants and all of your desires should always be met by other people in your relationships you're probably in your flesh it always will be emphasizing itself that is completely opposite of what the bible teaches our first and only priority is christ and our second priority is other people he said the greatest two commandments are to love the Lord thy God, that's number one, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
and your neighbor as yourself. Yourself was the last thing there, by the way. Jesus, others, you. That's joy. We used to learn that when the kids. J-O-Y, Jesus, others, you. If you keep that in that priority, you will have joy without question. A united church loves other people. It does. A serving church must love other people. You're not going to serve people if you don't love them. A biblically healthy church focuses on others. And that is not where the church in Corinth was, and I pray that that is not where we get to be in our lives today. He says in verses 3 and 4, you are still carnal. Even now, after these years have passed, you're still in your flesh. How do I know this? Because there is envy and strife and divisions among you, and you are behaving like mere men. What does he mean? You're behaving like lost people. You're not behaving like Christians when you act that way, when you are envious of people. And when there is strife, when there is tension. Have you ever walked into a room and you can just feel the tension between people? That's miserable. That's awful. I've walked into churches like that. It's awful to go into a church and you can feel tension. And I want to say this today. If there is someone in this room that you have something against, please, for the benefit of you and for the good of this body, deal with that. If you need someone else to get involved with the leadership here in this church, We'll stand alongside of you too, and we will be mediators. But please, I am urging you, and I'm not saying that there is anything. I don't know, but there very well may be. And if there is, church, let's deal with that. It won't go away. It won't just clear itself up because it's like a scab, and every time you see that person, you pick it, and it starts all over again. Let's deal with those things so that our church can be healthy, and there aren't divisions, and there aren't envy. Because... I'm going to give a warning, a prophetic warning, if you will, ahead of time. We are going to have elections in two weeks for positions in the church. I've never in my 20 years of ministry went through a nominating business meeting where someone's feelings didn't get hurt. And as much as I'd like to pray and hope, and I do, that that's not the case here, it very well might be. And I want you to understand that at the end of the day, there's one position in a lot of areas, and 150 people in the church. It's impossible to put every single one of you in any one position. But everybody in this room is a servant. And everyone in this room, I think, would say, I don't need a title to serve. And so listen, if you didn't get the title, that doesn't make you secondary. It doesn't make you lesser. It doesn't make you unimportant. And it certainly does not make you unusable. Because my commitment and the leadership's commitment is, our goal is in the coming year to mentor and disciple everyone in this church who wants to be discipled. Our goal and our intention is to make sure that you are equipped, which is the pastor's duty on down, to equip you for the work of the ministry. So if you don't get the title this year, but you want to be involved in that ministry, our commitment to you is we are investing in you so that you are able to do the things to serve in those areas. So please, if you start to get in your feelings about that kind of stuff, remember this conversation. And if you need to come to us and have that conversation again to help you, please do that. Because we want to be united. Because I am convinced that God is doing great things at this church and He is going to continue to do great things at this church. This year has been a year of growth spiritually. We have seen 
many people come to Christ this year. We have seen many new programs started from children's church things and Sunday school things and new classes there and the men's group. and the All the pieces are now there. And I believe that now the growth will begin to come from outside. And we're ready for it as long as we stay united spiritually. And so he says they're arguing and they're divided and they're strifing, they're fussing with each other. Here's what Jesus said about that. Jesus said in John 17, verses 20 and 21, he says, I do not pray for these alone. He had just prayed for his disciples. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Have you ever thought about that, what he just said there? But also for those who believe in me through their word. Here is their word. Everybody in this room that heard or read the word of God was prayed for by Jesus. Have you, have you ever thought about that? That the night before his crucifixion, Jesus was praying for you. That's amazing to me. He still prays for us now, by the way. It wasn't a one-time thing. He prays for his people. The Bible says he lives to make intercession for us. But in recorded in the scriptures is the fact that Jesus said, I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. Why? So that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. When the world sees a church united in mission and purpose and word and love, they can't explain it. They can't explain it. They say, what is different about those people? They love each other. They don't just say it, they show it. They don't just talk about helping, they do. They don't just talk about serving, they live it. And when they see that, Jesus said, the world may believe that you sent me. They may reject our message, but the way that we live will impact their life. And that may be the door that opens so that we can tell them about Christ. But if we don't live it out, they don't want to hear us. They don't care to hear you. Your words mean nothing if your life says something different. And we all, again, the reality of the Christian life, guys, is we all get in our flesh. We all do. But you can't grow and you can't move forward in your flesh. And so I'm asking you today, point blank, at this moment in your life, for, as a believer, who are you living for? Today, right now, would you say you're living for you or you're living for Jesus? And be honest about that. Just between you and Him, who are you living for? You might say, Jesus is my Savior. And amen to that. I, I hope and pray he is. But I want to ask you, can anybody tell that? If they look at you, if they know you, and you said, well, I'm going to church tomorrow, would they say, what? You? Church? Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Okay. What does that say about your life? What does that say about your testimony? What does that say about your witness? I'm not saying you're lost, but I hope you can definitely see that there's something wrong if that's their reaction to the way that you live your life. It's shock that you're a, that you're a believer. 
does your life and your actions, your talk and your finances and everything else show that you are a follower of Jesus? Are you outside of His will today? Are you living in the flesh? If you're a believer, you need to repent. You need to turn back to Christ. Confess the things that you're doing and ask God to forgive you and put Jesus first. That's all. That's all. I'm not here to guilt you. He's not here to give you a list and say, clean up your life first. He's simply saying, surrender. And put Jesus first. It's not about being a better... Listen, if you leave here today and you think this message is about you being a better person, you missed everything I said. This message is not about making you more moral. It's about you prioritizing Christ. It's about putting Him first in your life. And I'm speaking to believers right now. But if you're lost, I'm not asking you to do anything else this morning. I'm not asking you to join the church. I'm not asking you to get baptized. I'm not asking you to do anything other than understand that if you die before this sermon ends, you're on your way to hell. And the only hope you have is to turn from your sin and put faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's all. There's, there's, there's nothing else. There's no section two, part B. That's it. Turn from your sin and call upon Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And He will change your heart from the inside out. And then we'll get you a bottle. We'll put you in the nursery. And we'll help you grow a little bit. And hopefully pretty soon, Kevin can tell you, you'll graduate out of the nursery. And then, and then you'll get some baby food in the jar, some mashed up peas or something. And we'll feed you that for a little while. And for long, you'll have that steak, won't you, Kevin? <laughs> That's the challenge, church. Where are you at today in your walk? Or do you even have a walk? We're going to give a song of invitation. Cal's going to come. And Cal's going to play the song. I don't want you to listen to Cal. I want you to listen to the Holy Spirit. And if he's calling you today to confess and repent and get right in whatever way, that's what this invitation is for. That's your opportunity to come. So I'm going to pray. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. And that altar is open. And if you need him, you come. Father.